Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. This week, it's Masters Week. And joining me in just a couple of minutes is somebody who has been entrusted more than anybody in the design business to either reclaim, renovate, or restore championship golf courses. That, of course, is one of our, our hosts here on Five Clubs, Gil Hans. And when you think about all the things that have happened through the decades at Augusta National, the thing that has been constant is change. From 1934 to present day, including the significant changes made this year to hole number 11 and hole number 15, that is one thing that they've always done. They've always evolved as a club in terms of what they do, but also as a golf course and how they present it to the best players in the world. And nobody is better equipped to talk about what is required to look at what they've done in the past and what they intend to do in the future when it comes to the presentation and the setup of a major championship venue than Gil. So he is going to join me, and we are going deep on the design of Augusta National. With that, we welcome in Gil Hance. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Gary. Thanks. It, it's uh, look. This is a special week. If anybody has uh, an emotional investment in the game of golf, uh, this is the dividend right here. I mean, this is this is this is special, and we want to give people a chance through through your mind uh, to kind of give people a, a historical tutorial on on this living, breathing piece of land that people care so much about, uh, starting obviously with the membership. And let me, let me start by asking you this question, because I was mentioning in the introduction that, that, you know, in my mind, nobody has been entrusted with more historical uh, pieces of land that host major championship venues presently and going forward than you have. And I know you're humbled by that. When you, when you and your team are entrusted to, to present something, whether it be two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, what are the things that you lean on to begin putting together the blueprint um, for, for what it is that you want to achieve? Well, I mean, first and foremost, from our perspective, it's always history, right? It's, it's the, the original architect, it's the original architect's design intentions, it's how did he approach the land what did he create that is still certainly relevant to today? And then ultimately, what do we need to look at to make the golf course more relevant for the way the modern game is played? But you know, Jim Wagner and I have always focused on just that original design intent. And we have learned over a long period of time and being entrusted with these places that that was frequently good enough. I mean, what those guys did, you know, the Tillinghast, the Rosses, the McKenzies, et cetera, was so good. And so based in just the concept of golf, no real estate sales, no waterfalls, no cart paths, none of the stuff that you know has become a distraction for a lot of modern day golf architecture. Those guys, all they had to do is provide core golf and really just think about the principles of it. And when you go back in the game of golf, those principles have always stayed true. You know, the, the thought process behind strategic design, the placement, the precision required on shot making, the ability to not only you know, go out and play a golf course and be able to make your way around it. But then if you're hosting major championships, what 
parts of that design are relevant to today's game and what have I really I hate the phrase, but I can't think of a better way to say it. But you know what has stood the test of time, you know what has been relevant in the 1920s when those golf courses were built, or in the 1930s when Augusta National was built, that still holds true to this day and age. And it's remarkable how prescient those guys were, and how their ability to create again focus solely on pure golf is still so so relevant to today's game. Gil, the uh, the collaboration of Bob Jones and Alistair McKenzie. Uh, you mentioned the the early '30s, um, and and you know everybody who doesn't know, uh, obviously the affection that Bob Jones grew to have for the old course. You were just there, uh, as a matter of fact, over the past week. And I remember asking you some years ago, almost a decade ago, if I put you anywhere in the world and you could walk from the first tee of the 18th green what place would you learn the most about your craft? And you said without hesitation, the old course. So yeah. explain to people what it is that, that, that they saw in that place that they tried to impart upon this land in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, I just, uh, as you mentioned, I was so fortunate to spend a couple of days there and, and I didn't want to leave St. Andrews. I didn't want to go look at anything else, but just you know, reacquaint myself with the old course. It had been some time since I had been there. And it's just magical. I mean, and, it, and, and the magic, it's held sway over the game, you know, going all the way back to when Bobby Jones was playing there in the 20s. It, it, because it, no one designed it, it's almost the perfect design. It's as if man couldn't get in the way, right? I mean, you know, man, some, some people found these golf holes, but it was the evolution of an incredibly natural piece of ground and it was that evolution that ultimately led to, you know, most of what we believe and understand about golf course architecture, the thought process, the strategies, the ability to play away from trouble, you know, play to the interior of the golf course on the old course, you know, stay away from the boundary, stay away from the most of the hazards are out to the, to the right side of the golf course to basically find your way through a landscape. Like if you were to just sit down, you know, you might not do the, the crook, you know, if you were going to walk that property naturally, there's no golf course, you might not turn and then turn around and go back. But otherwise, it's probably how you would wander through that golf course and then figure out or that property and figure a way to get back to town. And so I think it was that incredible creativity that Mother Nature provided first and foremost, that became so applicable to the game. And, and I think in its simplest comparison, the old course is a cerebral golf course. Right, you have to think your way around it. You have to pick your way. I mean, think about when Tiger Woods avoided every bunker uh, on his way to the Open Championship, and he—it was thoughtful, it was meticulous, it was executed. But there was a game plan going into it before he started. And you know, we talk about you know the Mike Tyson thing. Everybody has a game plan until they get punched in the face. But it's you know the old course. You know, unless you get in the bunkers or you hit it out of bounds, you're not going to get punched in the face that much. You're going to basically be able to work your way through it. And I think Augusta National is very similar, you know, that there are places where you can get yourself in trouble. But Augusta at its core is, is a cerebral course. It is, you know, the perfect course. You know, we, we're always asked as golf course architects, how do you create a golf course that's challenging for the tour player and yet playable for everybody else? And what Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones created at Augusta National is just that. It is a golf course that requires, I don't want to say little precision, but not as much precision if you just want to go out and play golf. If all you're looking to do is go out, tee it up, hit it around, knock it around, you're not going to lose a lot of golf balls unless you're, you know, you get in trouble down on Race Creek. 
you're going to find strategically, you're going to always you know, have your ball in play. But to score at Augusta, we see it every April, the level of precision is off the charts, right? They have to be so precise in where they're placing their ball in order to gain an advantage, to gain the access to, you know, you've got these big rolling sloping fairways where the ball's moving in every direction. You've got to control your ball and keep it in those fairways. Then you've got to also get yourself to the proper half or the proper side of the fairway in order to access some of these hole locations. And then when you're on the green, you've got to put yourself in the proper quarter of the green in order not to worry about three putting. And so that level of precision, which from a play, just a playability standpoint is fun and interesting. And there's tons of character out there, but can be maddening and defeating for the best players in the world. If they're not hitting the ball precisely where they want to play it. And it's also one of those golf courses that, you know, the old course takes a long time to learn. You can't walk out there the first time and figure it out. In fact, you know, the story about Bobby Jones, the first time he played out there, he tore his scorecard up and walked in. You, to play well at Augusta National, you have to know the course. You have to either have a great caddy who's been through it. You have to understand the golf course and the way it can be played and the way you can access hole locations if you can't necessarily go at them. And so I think it's that brilliance. It's the combination of, of the, the playability. I mean, the old course is a course you can play and not get in a ton of trouble and have a good time. But when the wind is up and the conditions are such, you really have to golf your ball and you have to put it in the right position. And I think those parallels with, with Augusta and the old course and, and, and you have devoted McKenzie and Jones were both too, you know, loving and understanding the old course is really translated, you know, quite, quite well to, to Augusta National. Because they go back here every year, the, the general public has as much familiarity with these 18 holes as really any golf course in the world, maybe more so. Um, and the one thing that people talk about is, my gosh, it's always changing. Well, most golf courses, and I defer to you on this, are all changing. I mean, they're living, breathing things. Um, but the evolution of this place is remarkable when you consider the minds of the men um, who have been entrusted uh, to give their opinion and then, and then to make the changes that they've made. Um, but we'll get to change. But of the things that have stayed the same, what is the most same thing today as it was in 1934 about Augusta National? Yeah, I think you're you're right. From an evolution standpoint, it's a course that has just continued to evolve and and you know in theory improve over time and over time. And I think that you know when you ask me first and foremost, what do we look at when we look at these great old golf courses that are made? This is probably a golf course that, from a purely restorative standpoint, is not a candidate for restoration because we know it so much and it's so ingrained in our minds now. These iconic images. And, and, and we see every single year these great shots being played and to, to probably to try and restore it to what McKenzie and Jones built, there'd be a riot. I mean, there would be no way that any of the public would accept it, nor do I think it would probably be the, you know, the appropriate thing, certainly for the tournament. But I think what you're looking at there is, is, is the scale, right? It's the one thing you, people always say, where well, yeah. I want to go to so for the first time, I never realized it was that hilly. I never realized the scale to the place. And I think that you know, while there have been corridors created and trees planted over a long period of time, we tend to focus on the trees that have been planted in the last 20, 25 years. You, know, you look at an early aerial photograph of Augusta National, it was really wide open in the core, in the center. The periphery was, was treed and a lot of the holes that played down by Rays Creek were, were treed, but the scale of it and the beauty 
of that presentation and just the, the large scale contours in the fairways have not been changed. So I think you know, probably the, the most recognizable thing if, if, if Alistair McKenzie comes back, you know, and you, you, you got to remember, he never saw the golf course open. And, you know, he saw it played with Bobby Jones working and practicing and playing dirt golf with him out there, but he never saw. So imagine, you know, coming, if, he, if we had the power to bring him back 90 years later, what he would think, I think the most recognizable thing to him, aside from the routing, obviously, would be the scale of the landscape, the flow of the land, the way the entirety of the property still works off of that beautiful clubhouse set and kind of feeds its way through these valleys down and ultimately winds up at the bottom by Race Creek. Let's talk about the, the changes that have been made that, that people are going to notice uh, to whatever degree uh, this year to holes 11 and 15. Then we're going to get to uh, some thoughts on some other holes uh, through the years. Uh, l- let's start with hole 11. I- I've always thought uh, that this hole, first of all, there's, there's great history on this hole uh, because the, the way that they used to do the playoff. Look, I know Nick Fowler would love to. To, to parcel up some of this and, and take it home to his to his ranch. Some of the greatest moments of his life have, have occurred on this hole. Um, your thoughts on 11 all time and then specifically what they've done uh, in its presentation for this year. Yeah, I mean, as, as the entry to Amen Corner, it, it, it obviously sets the stage for what's to come. It's probably been overshadowed by 12 and 13 just because of, of the events that have happened on those two golf holes. But it is definitely a great stage setter. It gets you down into that corner, um, big landforms, you know, be teeing off high up on the hill from the master's tees and playing down through that, that landscape and through those corridors. And then when you crest that hill and all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, there's 11 green with the pond next to it. There's 12 green in the background. It, it, it takes, I mean, this is going to sound trite, but it literally takes your breath away. I mean, when you first get over that crest or if you're a, a patron and you're walking down that to the right side and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is what I've, you know, some people waited their whole lives to see and something that they've known and understand from, understood from TV for all this time. But it's, it's a tough hole. I mean, it gets to the point where, you know, when I worked with Tom Doak, he would always tell me stories about what Pete Dye would say, because you know, he had the opportunity to work with Pete. And he would tell me that Pete would often say, you know, make the long holes long. You know, if you make the long holes uh, play downwind, downhill all the time, then you have a bunch of medium holes. So make them play, if they're intended to be long, make them play long. And so I think the additional length, certainly for this day and age, is, is, is appropriate. The thing that, that Jim and I don't really like is when you, when you change angles from original design. Like, it's okay to go back. It's, it's in probably a necessary evil, given the way the game is played right now. But if you start to really change up angles, I think then that changes the original context for the golf hole. And I think that the, while the angle has shifted further to the left over the years, I think it still is appropriate, or at least in context with what was there. And then obviously the green setting, spectacular. I haven't obviously haven't seen it this year, so I don't know if any work has been done uh, to the mounding. But some of that mounding of 40, 50 yards short of the green was always beautiful in my mind. It's sort of a kicker slope that for a long hole back in the day, could feed balls down there. But if you, you know, hearkening back to the old course, you know, the ground game was a really a very important part of the original design. And so why would you put those mounds that far short of the green? Well, on a long hole in the day without irrigation, you could actually utilize those things to run a ball and feed it down. But if you got too frisky, it was going to kick you towards the water. Otherwise it would also kick you further right and, and give you that shot that you're staring at the water as you're putting, you know, chipping across the green. So it's, it's always been, 
probably overlooked, not certainly never overlooked in the difficulty category, but you know, as it's, it's setting the stage to move into Amen Corner. But it, yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's amongst many great holes out there. It really is one of them. You know, I, I, I'm going to give credit where it's due. Uh, Golf Digest did a, a wonderful job, uh, and you can go and find this at golfdigest.com, uh, of, of going through all the changes historically to every single hole. And I was just, just some footnotes for, for hole number 11, um, that in 1935, it was Bob Jones who added a fairway cross bunker uh, that was 240 yards out. Um, I, I just, I, just the thought of that is, is fascinating. And then beyond that, you know, obviously that being the low point of the golf course, uh, the issues with flooding and, and damming up that, that they've done a lot of damming over, over the, the, the decades, uh, Gil, uh, around that part of the, uh, the golf course. Cause it was, it was out of necessity raising the green, uh, 2004 was significant because that, that, that whole strand of mature pine trees that were added down the right-hand side, uh, Tiger Woods has really struggled driving the golf ball uh, over the last 20 years on that whole Bubba Watson, even when he was winning those two green jackets, has talked about feeling so claustrophobic uh, because he wants to work the ball from right to left, and there was the room had been encroached upon. Uh, and now... With some tree removal, and I saw it Saturday with the Augusta National Women's Amateur, that there is, there is more space in that driving zone than there has been over the last 20 years. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think you know, when you get to we talk about the, the damming and, and the structural aspects of, of golf course construction, you know, when you think about when they designed this golf course, they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It was, you know, Brooklyn's Nursery. It was a play, and and now subsequently over time and time as the as the area gets developed, you've got more impervious surfaces, offsite, adding more water. So flooding is something that occurred. So you're going to constantly have to deal with, with issues like that. So a lot of, you know, I think all those issues were all practical as opposed to design-wise as, as it relates to the green and, and the pond next to it. Yeah, I, I think over time, if you, if you look at, again, talking about evolution of a golf course, you know, you had... Bobby Jones is, is the founder of the place around until 1971. Now, I know he was incapacitated at the last part of his life, and so I don't know how instrumental or involved he was in design decisions, and then Clifford Roberts up until 1977. So there's always been a tradition and a history of member-led decisions, either whether, whether they're reacting to membership concerns on the design or to tournament concerns. So what happened over time is that we see chairman every not every year, but over periods of time, reacting to changes in the way the game has been played. And so I think that there was a period of time where bringing the golf course in with the second cut, uh, planting trees into areas, tightening landing areas that, that were, you know, were spots that were beyond what were intended to be the original landing areas was part and parcel of what they believed needed to, to be put in place to defend the golf course. And I think the unwinding of some of those areas and, and getting a little bit back closer to the ideal that, that Jones and McKenzie had about more of a St. Andrews open feel. I think that in my mind, those are always going to be alterations that are going to be good for the way Augusta national plays. Will it impact scoring and make the hole easier potentially, but I think there's plenty of trouble out there. And I think that it's better to have choices and options. And I think choices and options and how you play golf holes is the spirit, you know, certainly 
the soul of what St. Andrews is about. And I think it's what the soul of what Augusta National is about. So I think that the opportunity to have better choices, more options and different ways to play those golf holes and that the recovery shots, I think one of the great things about Augusta National is that the, the, the creativity required in the recovery shots, when you get yourself out of position, is unlike any other place in golf, mm. whether it's from the slopes of the way you're approaching or it's hitting off of pine straw or it's punching out from under trees. These players get to display a skill set that none of us will ever have. And to see them do so in the face of just brilliant golf architecture is something that I always enjoy seeing. Is all right, once you, you know, tour players don't hit every single fairway and they don't hit every single green in regulation. And part of the most compelling parts of golf course architecture is what are they faced with when they don't hit the fairway? What are they faced with when they don't hit the green? And I think that the, the, the questions that Augusta National asks provide some of the most compelling answers of any golf course in the world. Gil, before we move on from 11, I, I, I want to ask you, I've only played the golf course one time and Graham McDowell shared with me, 11 is his favorite hole for the point you made earlier, that when you crest the top of that hill, the majesty of the place, and as much as I love standing behind 10T and to see those crisscrossing loblolly pines behind the 10th green is, is extraordinary, 11 is like everything just becomes, it's just your vision, it's overload. Um, but I want to ask you about, about the green surface itself, uh, because depending on how close the, the pin locations are from middle left, it is uncanny how when a ball gets left of a, of a left pin, how it doesn't seem like it can stop. And, and it's two-dimensional on television, but the subtlety of how treacherous the left side of that green is, is fascinating to me. Just your thoughts on the green itself. Yeah, because that's part of the complexity of, of that recovery option. Okay, every player who plays in the tournament knows you can't miss left. You know, obviously there's water over there. So now you're you're edging further and further right. And the further right you go to stay out of the water, the more complex that is coming across the slope of, of that green. And when the greens are at tournament speed, whew, I mean, it's the most delicate shot. And, and golf architecture to a certain degree, I mean, we're not very nice guys when it comes to what, but when you're standing there and you're looking at water, right? If you've missed that green right and you're looking out of a little low up and onto that putting surface and everything is just moving towards that water and you see the biggest problem is actually staring you in the face. I mean, that mentally, that's just got to take its toll on you. And it's just that that gets back to that when the course is at tournament speed that level of precision required to play golf out there is so high. And, and, and I think you see people's players nerves, they get frayed. You know, if, if you're not golfing your ball well at Augusta, I mean, good luck with, you know, not only keeping your composure through the entirety of it, but having to face those recovery shots hole after hole, I can't even imagine the mental pressure that puts on you. Let's, let's go to hole number 15 you know, it, it, it gained notoriety just in the second year of the event because of what Gene Sarazen did. Um, and I'm not taking away from what he did. The, the, the look of the hole, again, when you stand on the top of that hill and, and with the water that is behind the green, that there is, there's real estate behind, obviously, the 15th green and, and what is short of 16T. But the, the optics make it look like a sliver of a green that is fronted by water and the water behind the green 
Gil doesn't look that far away. <laughs> it just doesn't. It's 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 an amazing optic. Uh, just your thoughts on 15 in general, and we'll get to the changes. Yeah, I, another just fantastic hole. I mean, just up over again, up over that ridge and then down. It it, it strikes me as a hole. It's really it it's there's no great layup. Right. I mean, you're, you're hitting to it and basically everything is feeding down. You're going to have the ball, you know, hanging lie to that, you know, hitting to that green, you know, you got to get the ball up in the air. And, you know, again, from an amateur's perspective, it's just almost impossible, but to, to watch those guys, you know, to hit those shots to, to, to hit into that green is really quite interesting for me as well. But obviously if you lay it up closer to the water, you get a flatter spot. So it's, from the standpoint of just the, the thought process through it, you're right, the optics, the way the elevation of the green and the way it's tilted back at you, it obscures a lot of that ground that's behind you. So you're looking at the water on the 16th hole through it. It's, it's, it's an exciting golf hole at a perfect place in the round of golf, right? When you see 13 and 15, almost back to back, but you know, that's, that's where you have to make your move. And you know, given the changes, I think that the, the length is, is appropriate and it's adequate for a par five for these guys. I'm hopeful it doesn't take away a lot of, you know, the ability for these guys to go for the green, you know, because with the, the narrowing of, of the tee shot and, you know, the having to fit it into that you know, much narrower slot with the, the trees that have been put in on the left-hand side and also on the right-hand side, you know, this will be one worth watching. If you're an architecture geek and you really want to understand, see something and be like, okay, when all is said and done, let's see what the statistics look like. You know, how many guys actually went for it? What was, what's the scoring average? Did it provide the excitement? I don't know whether they've left T space forward enough that they could always go forward Mm -hmm. if they wanted to, to the, to the yards they were playing over the last few years. I haven't seen the scale of it, so I don't know, or whether they're, you know, now committed to being at this longer yardage. And so that I think will be interesting from a setup standpoint is whether the tournament committee, you know, has flexibility so that they can set it up and provide for some of those great changes uh, in scoring and opportunities for scoring that we, that we associate with 15th hole. For those folks who are not aware that the T was moved back. Uh, so the hole is, is measuring 550 yards uh, and it has been among the five easiest holes. If you look over the last couple of decades, that, that's not unusual. One, it's a five par. Um, and, and, you know, look, it, it, for these guys, anything just a little bit over 500 yards, and, and especially since the second is playing downhill, it's not as if it was not reachable for the lion's share of the players in the field. I want to ask you about the mounding, because mounding at Augusta National, it, it's such a, you know, fascinating and important design feature uh, the mounting on the right-hand side, and then the two big loblolly, more than two, but a couple uh, that are on the left-hand side, and then the, the inclusion of the trees that they added a little bit over 20 years ago that, that now separate 15 and 17 fairway. Just your thoughts on, on those features. Yeah, I was surprised, and, and, and you're right, and thank you for pointing me in the direction of the Golf Digest article on the, the evolution of it. I didn't know that those were Clifford Roberts had put those mounds in. Uh, at, at some point in time. So again, you talk about membership and, and, and architectural direction. I think George Cobb was the architect at the time when, when those were put in. Uh, been shifted downrange, obviously, for, the, for this day and age. But mounding at, at Augusta, again, gets back to the ground game. You know, it's that whole concept of interesting things. And, and you know, this was just reaffirmed to me when I was in St. Andrews. The interesting things happen when the ball gets on the ground. 
know, golf has become such an aerial game. And, um, you know, Jeff Shackelford wrote a, wrote a great piece about the ties between St. Andrews and Augusta National and talked an awful lot about the initial concept with no irrigation and how the ground game was supposed to be a critical part of the, the way the, the golf course played. And I think those mounds were, you know, we talked about them on 11. They existed throughout the, the property. And when you look at a property like Augusta National, when, when Jones and McKenzie first were brought to it, this, the scale of the contours were all big, right? There were none of these sort of smaller human scale contours that we associate with, with the old course. So what they had to do to create some of that ground game interest instead of everything being on a big, large sort of tilted plane was they put the mounds in to try to direct balls and to give a little bit more unpredictability. Again, getting to the precision, trying to, you, you can use this mound, but you got to hit the proper side of it. You got to make sure you get the proper trajectory on your shot. Everything has to be right in order to utilize those things. And so I think they've always been part parcel of that. Um, you know, the funny thing about trees we always talk about is that they grow, right? So those trees that were planted 20 years ago were, were big, you know, when they were put in and now they're, they're big, you know, bigger. And so I think that they're going to have more and more of an impact on the way that the golf holes play. And I have no doubt that the, the consulting architect there now and the, and the club have, you know, they'll take that into consideration through the maturity of it. But it's, 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 you know, it gets down to, it's a very fine line between restricting play and restricting what were the original design intent. You know, I'm sure when, Jones and McKenzie built that with the little creek running across the front of the 15th green instead of the pond. They probably weren't thinking about a lot of players getting home in two until Sarazen, you know, makes the double eagle. And so it was probably they thought going to be a three-shot hole. So you, it, you, it's a fine line between arguing or what was their intent? How did they think about this whole thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm, I'm certain that there's, there'll be a lot of thought given to, how you, where that line goes and hopefully it doesn't go too far in the direction of, of requiring or choking off the opportunity to play that hole in an exciting fashion or not too far in the other direction that it just becomes a meaningless tee shot to the, the, these guys and then everybody goes forward in two. So it's a, I don't envy them in having to figure out exactly, and especially knowing that every single year you're going to be under scrutiny. You know, it's not like you get a few years to figure out whether this is going to work or not. You basically get, you know, every April, the, the, the best golf tournament in the world is coming to Augusta National and everybody's excited to see it. You mentioned the name George Cobb. And if you look historically, you, you also mentioned that Dr. McKenzie uh, did not see this, this golf course play under tournament conditions with respect to what was the Augusta National Invitation. And then obviously they adopted the name after about a decade of the Masters Tournament. But but somebody who you have enormous admiration for, who was entrusted not too long after his passing uh, and, and his work and your restoration is going to be on display at the next major championship. And that's Perry Maxwell. Um, and he had a lot of influence. I mean, in the first decade of the of the existence uh, of this club, I, I want you to share just what you think his greatest contribution as far as design and his thoughtfulness was to the game of golf and as it was applied to Augusta National. Yeah, we were joking one day uh, looking at his career and, and having you know, had the, the great honor to, to restore Southern Hills. 
is he was like the, the green builder to the stars, right? When you think you see, you know, he did some work at Pine Valley, he did some work at National Golf Links, he did some, he obviously did a lot of work at Augusta National. And so he was widely respected for his ability to figure out and to create you know, just beautiful green settings and, and amazing green contours. And I think it was wise of the club to go to somebody who had such experience working with Alistair McKenzie uh, on a number of projects and understanding McKenzie's mindset and what he believed in golf and probably having discussed Augusta National with him, you know, to, to ultimately figure that out. It's not unusual when a golf course is created for, for there to be changes, for there to be conversations, you know, whether that comes through, Jim and I always talk about, you know, listen, let's, we tell owners or members play the golf course for two years. And if something isn't quite right, you know, we're hopeful that over a period of time, you'll start to figure out, okay, there was a method to the madness and this is why the whole thing worked or didn't work in their mind's eye. But, you know, knee jerk reactions after a year or after several months never are quite right, unless you've done a poor job, which we hopefully haven't. But you get to a point where all of a sudden you've got the, you know, the Augusta National Invitational and now Bobby Jones is being surrounded by his golfing peers, you know, most of them professional, he obviously being an amateur, but golfers of, of similar abilities to him. And he starts to listen and he starts to hear things and he starts to obviously visualize and say, okay, yeah, maybe they're right or maybe they're not, or maybe this didn't play the way we intended it for it to be played. So it's not unusual in the first five, six, seven years to make changes. And so he obviously brought in somebody who was highly respected for his own work, but also had a relationship with McKenzie. So it makes perfect sense on every level for him to have come in. And you, you look at the, the alterations that were made, uh, the, you know, the seventh green, uh, significant changes that was originally intended to be similar to the, you know, the 18th green on the old course, Valley of Sin, wide open fronting bit to it. Um, you, know, you have players driving that green in one of the early uh, tournaments. So you get to a point where, okay, we need to, to defend this. How does that work? You bring in, bring in Maxwell to, to alter that, put in bunkers, change some of the contours of the green. The 14th green, uh, looking at some of the mounding in front of it. And, and that, in my mind, is one of, if not the most sublime creations I've ever seen in my life. You, know, you look at the green and the way it, it, it just sits along that ridge. But then when you delve deeper, you look to the right-hand side of it and you look at the scale of the earthwork they needed to put in place in order to hold up the right side of the green. I mean, that ridge falls pretty hard down towards uh, Ray's Creek. And then you, there's another mound short of that on the right. And they utilize these mounds and they got the scale just right that from a distance, you're not perceiving that this is artificially propped up on the right-hand side. If they had done some insignificant or really sharp bank over on that side, you go, okay, wait a second. They just, they lifted this side of the green, but because of the tie-ins and because of the beauty of it and just the way he, he understood landforms, I, I marvel every time I get to see that green and, and just the beauty of it. It's, it's staggering. I mean, it honestly is. It takes your breath away as a golf architect to look at a creation that was not natural. And for them to, for him to have, you know, obviously he started off with McKenzie had the green in the same location, but just the, the brush strokes that he added to it and, and on and on with number nine, um, the changes, you know, obviously originally was, you know, well, the, the extracted molar or boomerang green, that yeah. was there, but apparently players played down the first, 
uh, fairway in order to come into what was the left-hand side of that green. So, you know, Maxwell brought into change. So it's just on and on the refinements that, that he made, you know, and, and probably, you know, the most significant is moving the 10th green. You know, moving it up onto that ridge, getting out of, out of the low where McKenzie had it. Again, you talk about practical issues. Apparently, it didn't drain very well down there, and, and the foresight to see and understand that you know that that plateau area would obviously function better from a green standpoint. But then to leave that long bunker, which was basically a greenside bunker, in the foreground, and to set up. <laughs> You know, you, you just, you get, I get, I mean, I get, obviously get giddy about this stuff, but to understand the scale and to have that bunker setting down in the floor and you're coming from this great height playing down there and it almost extends the flat visually to your eye because it, you know, all this stuff going on behind it, you don't really appreciate, you know, the, the 60, 70 yards before you start climbing up the hill to the green because you're so distracted by the beauty and the scale of that thing. And then to have the green set up on that ridge and the tilt to it, his contributions to Augusta National were, I think, by and large, just just all fantastic. And, and it was, I think, great respect and foresight by Bobby Jones to bring him in for those initial changes, as opposed to another golf architect who might have decided, hey, I want to put my fingerprints all over this thing um, and, and get gotten away from what was the original concept. You, a couple things just to follow. I, I want to start with 14 because... Uh, my, my dad actually had a moment there. Uh, he was playing uh, with a gentleman who he worked for. He was a member. Uh, this was back in the mid-'80s, and, and Mac O'Grady was out there about 150 yards. It was about two weeks before the Masters tournament, uh, and Mac said play through. He was by himself, but he called him over. And so it, you pointed out that that mounding short of that 14th green, and it's the only hole – uh, that does not have a bunker on, on the golf course. Mac O'Grady hit all 14 clubs in his bag, including his putter. He said, I, he said, I'll bet you guys I can hold the green with all 14 clubs. And he did it. My dad was a witness to that. And Mac was a kind of a savant type of person, but somebody who, you know, is a dear friend of yours and, and you're a great admirer of his work. Ben Crenshaw believes that that may be the greatest green complex in in all the world and he had some great moments there i remember living and dying with him in 1984 he made a par putt there on saturday from about 20 feet because he had a long putt on the far left hand side and just left it right there on on what was essentially the last little shelf before it would have trundled all the way down uh to that pin but but that Green, to me, if you're going to the tournament this week and you want to see something extraordinary, just walk out there. You'll be mesmerized by it. It's amazing. It is. I always stand there. I mean, one of the, the, the little secrets that I, you know, I'm fortunate to go there is, is when the par three contest is on. I'll frequently go out on the on the big course and just and just stand I mean, you because then there's nobody out there and you can walk around. Not obviously you can't walk around the front of it, but you can walk around the sides and get a great view of it and the perspective of it. Yeah, there's, yeah, it it, it really is special. <laughs> Seven, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the idea that that somebody would drive that green. Uh, Byron Nelson, 1937, apparently uh, was able to reach that green off the tee. It was a year in which he he won the tournament. Uh, you, you also mentioned that it was to some degree to be an homage to 18 at St. Andrews. The other thing that I read uh, was that when the changes were made and you have a, a particular affinity and knowledge of Pine Valley, 
that, that with the bunkering around the green on seven the way that it is, uh, and with the, with, with the elevation that was created for that green complex was to be similar to eight at Pine Valley. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, right, they're two small greens. And, yeah. and, but um, that seems a little bit of a, I mean, maybe they, they intended of it, but I think the or, the angle, the orientation of the green is different. You know, seven is more side to side, yep. whereas at Pine Valley is a little bit more head on to you. Um, and there's nothing, uh, thankfully, nothing at, at Augusta National like that back left pop bunker on number eight at Pine Valley, <laughs> which has extracted a number of strokes from me. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, conceptually, yes. And, and I think that's one of the great things is, you know, as, as, as mentioned, Jeff Shackelford pointed out in his article, you know, there are like seven or eight holes or six or seven holes that, that draw inspiration from the, the holes at, at, at St. Andrews, but none of them are templates. None of them are, you know, like a McDonald Rainer type right. thing where there are copies of it. There's more inspiration from it. So could Maxwell or, or Bobby Jones or, or Clifford Roberts, whoever made the suggestion of, of making it more like number eight at Pine Valley, I mean, could they have been inspired by number eight at Pine Valley? Absolutely. And it, but it's, it, it's, it's harder to draw parallels there than I think it is for some of the, the relationships with, with the old course. Uh, holes four and five, um, these holes, when Tiger won in 2019, he made back-to-back -back bogeys on four and five in that final round. And uh, people looked at Francesca Molinari and said, God, he's so locked in. Maybe this is the bobble uh, that's, that, that, you know, he, he succumbs. That wasn't obviously the case. Uh, just your thoughts historically, the evolution of hole number four, and then we'll get to number five. Yeah, I mean, number four patterned after the Eden Hall, so you've got this big shelf uh, kind of tilting back at you, and, and then, you know, fronting bunker on, on the right side, very much like strap bunker, and then the deep bunker to the left, the hill bunker, where, you know, supposedly Bobby, that's where Bobby Jones lost it uh, um, on his first go-around on, on the old course. So you can see the similarities there. I think originally the green like many of the greens out there were much more eccentric in their shapes, their outlines. It appeared that the, you know, the tongue that came forward was much longer and narrower um, and almost uh, like a, a handle um, coming out and then the, the back part swooping around. So I think that those modifications softened a little bit the, the sharpness of those angles. It, it's one of those things where you, you know, I think Augusta National has got a, a pacing that we all know and understand and are comfortable with, right? Number one is tough. It's okay, you're, you're starting off. And then you look at two and three, and if you play your ball well, there's probably two birdie opportunities. Then it's like four, five, six to a certain degree, you're almost like holding on to get through that stretch and you know, come out the other end, either even par, maybe one over. And then you know, seven used to be another breather and eight being a par five is another opportunity. And then you know, nine. You, so and the same thing on the back nine, you know, the birdies are going to, you got to kind of get through a left 10, 10, 11, 12, and then you get 13, you know, 14 is not really a birdie, only 15 is birdie and then 16 on the, with the Sunday hole location is potentially. So we, we know there's this pacing to it. And I think that's obviously was intentional. So I think four five, although we don't get to see those holes that much on, on television, uh, they've got an amazing place in in the round of golf, and and when you look at the early aerial photographs for number five, and and the commentary that was provided by Mackenzie and Jones, there were a lot of trees down the 
the left-hand side. And so almost replacing the station master's garden or the, the railroad sheds on this, the, the road hole, it's in Andrews where these trees, you hit it over there, you were done. You know, you're, you're having a hard time figuring out how to get back in. And then the green complex itself with that upper shelf and the kind of stepping to that plateau, much like you see at the front uh, to the side. The only thing missing is the road hole bunker, right? Because if you went over in the original, if you went over that green, I mean, you could wind up on that. You weren't going to literally wind up all the way down by 16 green, but you, you know, you were going to, you were going to go a long way away and that chip back up to that green with the way it's that plateau. And that would have been an extremely difficult shot. Very much, very similar to the, to the back of the road hole green. You go over the back of the road hole green and you're on the road or you're on a path. So I think conceptually it was there minus the, the road hole bunker. So you, you can see all of these concepts executed brilliantly on a completely different piece of ground. You know, Augusta couldn't be any more different than the old course from a topography standpoint, but still conceptually so sound and so well done without coming, ac coming across as, as being copies. The, uh, the hole number five, there was recently a poll done uh, of, of master's participants, and half of them were, were past champions. Uh, and the lion's share said hole number five was the most difficult hole on the golf course. Um, and if you consider what they've done to, to create more length through the years, buying up real estate, uh, it's now 495 yards uh, playing significantly uphill off the tee. Those two massive yawning bunkers uh, down the left-hand side. Um, I, it, I just I look at it and go that that is a grown-up golf hole. Um, and 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 when you get to the green, uh, to the point you made about the rolled hole green, that the front of that green is not a false front. That's the front. And there's nothing false about it. Uh, it yeah. is. It is. Uh, it's so dramatic when you when you get to that green surface. Uh, and, and back to Maxwell, he reshaped the green in 1937, um, and apparently Jones very pleased uh, with, with the work that he did there. I, I find that green to be the greatest example of the scale of the golf course, and to your point, it doesn't get seen that much. No, that's true, and, and I don't know if you've seen, but in the recent golf, I just uh, Derek Duncan did a really nice job describing the different sets of greens, like ocean swells, tilted planes, and I can't remember the last one was either stepped or plateaued or something like that. And it's true. I mean, that there's there's a theme that runs through the entire golf course, and the variety of them you can kind of loosely connect the, the three sets of different types of greens, and that's definitely a big kind of ocean swell up, step up onto that ridge and that plateau again so marvelously done to get the scale and the contours of it right. You know, it could have easily been done poorly and they, well, they didn't do anything poorly at Augusta National, but it's one of those things where, you know, that was just done with such care and such skill. Um, yeah, again, you, you, as a golf architect, you walk off of that property humbled mm. to think of the, what they were, what they created, how they did it in the time that they did it. And it's just, uh, you know, it, but you're also inspired, right? Whenever I leave Augusta National, you can guarantee that the first greens that we're going to be working on or building over the next three to four weeks, there's going to be some inspiration. There's going to be some thought that came from there. It's like, oh yeah, maybe we just, even if it's just like a smaller section of one of the greens or it's just the time plans or the way the whole thing works, we're, we're humble, but we're, and we're very, but we're always inspired. 
A uh, couple more holes, and then a final thought from you. Uh, holes 12 and 13. Um, 12 is, I, I, I think it is, considering nobody walks over the Hogan Bridge unless, unless, with few exceptions, you're a participant and a competitor in the event. Um, it's, it's the greatest stage imaginable. There are no distractions. It's all natural. Um, and when I say natural, it's like, oh, my God, they just they found this and they just they, here it is like here it is. Um, yes. Your thoughts on hole number 12. Um, brilliant. From the standpoint of it is there's this little angle to it, right? It, it, it looks like you're looking at it and it's directly, you know, you're you're playing right across this hazard. But just that little kink so that it's hard longer to get to the right than it is to the left. And it's hard to perceive that. And then the winds, you know, which obviously that was, you know, if those guys figured out how capricious those winds are swirled down there when they were building it there, you know, that, that was amazing to figure that out in, in, the, in the ground. So all of those things combined, just that very subtle little shift. It's again, reminds me of something Tom Doak talked about with Pete Dye and just understanding you know, when your carry yardage for a really good player is the same, whether you're going left or right, pretty hard to mess that up but if your carry yardage is you know i'll just make up a number it's 147 going right and it's 139 going left well that you could miss that mm. if you don't hit it either just pure or you get a gust or whatever it takes that brilliance again you talk about just a, a sliver of a green because the backdrop is pretty steep behind it and obviously the foreground is not something and it just looks so tiny hitting over to it yeah it's it's, it's Another magical spot in the game of golf. The uh, the bunkers have been in the same place uh, for 60 years. The width and the depth of the green has shrunk maybe just a, l a little bit. It looks unchanged. But it is, you know, Gil, to me, the thing about 12, 12 green is you've played 11 holes that have the most, you know, profound, significant contour uh, that you, you probably ever played in competition, you get to 12 and you're probably looking for things. It's not there. It's, yeah. and, and there's a genius in that, like midway through you've all, you've just dealt with maybe the most mentally challenging swing of the day because of the uncertainty of the swirling winds. And then you get on the green and they presented you with something that is flatter than anything you've seen by a wide margin on the previous 11 holes. I, I just, it's amazing. And you think about it, you know, McKenzie understood that you don't need to overcomplicate. You've got a beautiful setting. You've got an amazing spot for, for the greens. Think of what the other most famous part three that he designed, 16 at Cypress, right? When you play Cypress Point, you play all these greens that are complex and rolling and, and, and challenging. That green's got some slope, but it doesn't have a lot else going on. And why would you need to compete with the setting like 16 at Cypress? You don't need to over bunker it. You don't need to overthink it. You don't need to overcomplicate it. And maybe to a certain degree, that's what he was thinking in number 12. I've got this incredibly natural setting. I just need to set something very simply in the ground here and don't try to overdo it. And that, you know, Bill Coor talks a lot about learning to show restraint when given certain opportunities, you need to practice restraint. And I think that that was certainly an example right there where Jones and McKenzie practiced restraint on the, on the contours of that green. Uh, last hole was some specifics. Hole number 13, I saved it for last. Uh, because I think in a lot of people's eyes, it's the most revered golf hole. Uh, you're an enormous fan of the half par. 
um, and and you pay tribute to it at Ohupi. Um, this is just a, a wonder, and it's on the perimeter of the property. And they found this, and they went, "Yeah, this one's going to work." Um, and yeah. and just your your, your thoughts uh, on this hole. Um, you know, nothing in in nature or in golf design is perfect. It was pretty darn close. I mean, just the way it's laid in there, the hazard, the the tilt of the land, you know, needing to shape your shot in the direction where the hazard is in order to play it well. Um, just the, the, the slope that's holding up on the side, it's just, it's incredible to me that, like you said, they just found this hole. And to just kind of leave it, um, yeah, the, the simplicity of restraint. Right. You get down to this corner of the property and they showed amazing restraint in finding these these natural golf holes. And yeah, it's like I said, maybe not perfection, but about as close as you can get. Uh, before I let you go, just an overall thought of the importance uh, of this particular golf course when it comes to the business you're in. Uh, why does it remain and will always remain uh, so important to to the design of golf uh, when it was created? today and a hundred years from now? Uh, you know, two brilliant minds, you know, one a designer, one a player, uh, collaborating on a beautiful piece of property with um, ambitions of doing something great. And the results were exactly that. Um, I mean, you had, you know, I don't know if that's ever happened again or ever will happen again, where you've got these two minds that are thinking and working their way through through a project and trusting each other to, to have that happen. And then uh, the, the confluence of all that creativity and all that the great thought is converted into a major championship, right? It's, you know, it's not the national championship of anything or any organization. It's just been the greatest run tournament from its beginning. And, and it's obviously an honor and an homage to, to Bobby Jones and his influence on the game of golf. And then to see that golf course, the only one of the major championships we see year after year after year and the continual um, opportunities to, to, to fall in love with that place over and over again, it's, it's, it's unique in, in, in all of golf. And while it's a golf course that, you know, people who understand what Jim and I like and how we work is a you know, much more raw sort of natural presentation to a golf course, you know, to a certain degree, Augustin Hashimil is the, the antithesis of what we try to build. And, but the architecture leaves me inspired and humbled, as I said, every single time I leave there. It, it, it's just, it, it's amazing to me the variety and the thought process and the creativity and, and just how well, you know, we started this off with, you know, that trite saying stands the test of time. I mean, if there's any place in the game of golf, obviously it's evolved and it's changed, but at its core and at its heart, it is still the same golf course that those guys conceived and created. And I think that that in itself is an amazing legacy and it's certainly something that every golf architect, whether you like the presentation or not, needs to be able to look and study to try to understand the greatness of that line of being able to play a golf course and the precision required to score on a golf course. Nowhere in the world of golf is that more impressively done than at Augusta National. And if that's the core 
question that we're all striving for as golf course architects, then that makes it an absolute prerequisite to practice our profession to at least try to understand the Augusta National Golf Course and the fact that it's at its core, its principles evolve from the old course, you know, makes that just perfection. Because from, you know, a lot of places claim to have sprung from, from the old course, but, uh, but Augusta National sure as heck got it right. I know you're excited to get there later this week. Uh, enjoy it. Thank you for, for all the time today. Appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. You can tell I get, uh, every, we all get amped up for the Masters, right? Everybody is excited for it. And, and you know, whether it's architecture, play, presentation, telecast, you know, start of spring here in the Northeast, it's, it's, it's an exciting time for all of us. And so thanks for, let, you know, thanks for sharing a conversation about it. I enjoyed it. Well, really appreciate Gil Hansen. And maybe you could see that uh, that's geeking out when it comes to golf course architecture and, and listening to somebody, what, what all of these, these great designers and architects through, through time have clearly displayed and, and obviously only knowing a few present day, thoughtfulness. And, and that is what Jones and McKenzie try to impart upon Augusta National. And if you consider the likes of, of Perry Maxwell and George Cobb, Tom and, and George Fazio, uh, Joe Finger, even Jack Nicklaus, Bob Cup. All these different people through the years that, that their business was designing of golf holes, golf holes have been entrusted by Augusta National to refine, tweak, change, bring back certain things that maybe had been been lost. Um, that's what they are doing. They're constantly evolving. So I appreciate Gil taking the time. And, and one note about Gil, the next two major championships he restored both golf courses, and he will be doing shows uh, for us right here on Five Clubs about Southern Hills, which I was lucky enough to be with him when they uh, did the grand reopening a couple of years ago. That is a Perry Maxwell design. PGA is going to be there in May. And going back to the country club at Brookline, what he did there is sensational, and he is going to talk about both of those major championship venues that he was entrusted uh, to renovate and, and restorate uh, coming up here on the Five Clubs Conversation. And one other note, next week, we turn our attention back to the PGA Tour and all the other things going on in professional golf. Andy Gardner, the head of the Premier Golf League, if you thought that they were going away, not at all. The details of what they're trying to do to partner with the PGA Tour, a lengthy, detailed conversation with him right here on the Five Clubs Conversation is coming up. For all of us here, enjoy the Masters Tournament. We'll talk to you next week.